I just started to drive the city to see what was happening in the city as far as the immigrant population was happening. And I drove up and down Nolansville Pike, which is one of the main corridors in Nashville. And it's the corridor that has the most immigrant population. And mm-hmm. there was a huge billboard that said in Spanish, it said, call 911, llame al 911. And I thought, for what? If you did not grow up here, if you don't know about the U.S. culture, why do I call 911? So I immediately realized there's a need for my services from a cultural perspective, from a marketing perspective, and not only from a language perspective. And so that's when I decided to launch Hispanic Marketing Group. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is episode number 136. We're now into season four and have been cranking away in season four for the last several months. And when I realized that this was actually episode 136, I said, well, let me mention that because that's a lot of people that I talk to, a lot of amazing, interesting, fascinating people, people we're learning from, people I'm learning from. And man, this podcast idea has just been really, really fun to do. Today, my guest is Marcela Gomez. And Marcela, well, her story is really interesting because she's a native of Bogota, Colombia, but graduated from high school in Charlotte, North Carolina. And she'll talk about that as well, being a Hispanic in Charlotte, North Carolina, several decades ago. She went back to Columbia for her bachelor's degree at university and then moved to Miami, worked in the media business for many years in advertising and actually became very well known in Tennessee and Nashville, Tennessee in particular, as part of the Spanish language division of a big marketing group and publisher and television station. She's really an entrepreneur at heart. And in 2002, she started the Hispanic marketing group. She became the founding partner later with what she calls the culture shift team. Basically what she does, she helps companies, she helps individuals, she helps entrepreneurs, she helps people connect to the Hispanic market and understand that marketplace in a way that could be highly beneficial for them and for their business interests. She's really a multicultural expert. She's been involved in so many different industries, which is really kind of cool, you know, food, healthcare, finance, uh, government, education, transportation, the arts, consumer, public utilities. It's a long, long uh, list. She lives in New York City now, uh, where she continues to do her work in PR and advertising and marketing, multicultural marketing in particular, uh, for the uh, Culture Shift team. And she's really talented, but also particularly proud of her son, Esteban Pedraza, who's an award-winning film director and musician, also living in New York City. So Marcella is really a wonderful person to talk to because she's so 
empathetic and understanding. And I guess part of that goes with the territory, I guess, because of her career. It's all about understanding people and cultures and helping uh, people make those connections. But part of it is her personality as well. Just somebody that they just kind of impressed at her journey and enjoy talking to her. And I hope you're going to enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed chatting with her. Marcella Gomez on the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. And Today, my guest is Marcela Gomez. Hello, Marcela. Hello, Sid. It's very good to have you with us and talking to our listeners on the SIDcast and telling your story. You're in New York now, aren't you? I am in New York City, yes. Yeah, and I'm at home in Hanover, New Hampshire. I suspect your weather's a little bit better than ours, but that's how it goes. Um, <laughs> but you're not a lifelong New Yorker. You moved around a little bit, and that's where I want to start our story. So were you born in Columbia in I don't mean Columbia University, just for all the New Yorkers who <laughs> think that only New York City is the entire world, but the country of Colombia. I was it. I was actually born in Bogota, Colombia in the early 1960s. In the early 1960s. So I actually have been to Bogota once, probably 10 years ago now. It's a very beautiful city. It's kind of a hip, cool city, but it also went through some really, really difficult times. I'm not sure Absolutely. the status today but it was for a very long time with the drug wars, civil wars. What was it like when you were growing up? Bogota is a beautiful city, first of all. Thank you for acknowledging that. I love the city of Bogota. The one thing that I miss the most about the city are the beautiful, green, luscious mountains that surround the city of Bogota. So, you know, when I go back, that's definitely what I see all around. When I was born, I was actually born in 1964 in Bogota. My father was a pilot with the Colombian Air Force when I was born. And my mother was a young 18-year-old who was a stay-at-home mom. And Bogota for me is my childhood, is where I remember being able to play outside with my friends until you would hear my mother yell, you know, come home for dinner. But we had that beautiful experience of freedom, if you will, of being able to go outside and, you know, play with friends, be at friends' houses. I actually still, to this day, very good friends with Gloria, who I met when we were both five years old. And wow. so we grew up in a small neighborhood in Bogota called La Floresta, which still exists. And just, you know, just being able to go to school with everybody. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my, my mother was actually fully bilingual. My mother had had the chance to go to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'll share that story a little later. And so we grew up fully bilingual, not only because my mother would speak to us in English at home, but because we were going to fully bilingual schools in Bogota. So I was I had that privilege of, of having different languages at home. Right. So it sounds like, especially if your mom was very young when you were born, that she came from, you know, relatively wealthy family to be able to go and do all that. Is that right? Yes, it was a middle class family. You know, my grandparents were both Colombian on both sides. However, my grandmother, one of her brothers was a pilot. And so from a very early age, my grandmother would fly in a cargo plane to Miami. <laughs> so her brother would say, hey, do you want to go to Miami? And she's like, yes. And so she would come to Miami when she was very young in a cargo plane. And so she always knew about the United States. And before she passed away, all of us asked her questions about her life and we oh, asked her great. why. Yes. Yeah. And we have it all in writing. And so we asked mm. Nanny, we called her Nanny. We asked her, why did you say yes to come to the United States? Mm -hmm. And she said, because of education. 
education for women and the abundance that this country had. So obviously my grandmother, you know, grew up in the twenties in Colombia, a lot of wars happened, a lot of civil wars, a lot of poverty, etc. And although they came from a middle-class family, there were not a lot of opportunities for them to, you know, grow their business or, you know, increase their income. My grandfather was an accountant, but also an entrepreneur. And he was working for an American company in Colombia in the accounting division. And his boss was sending his daughters to Atlanta, Georgia to learn English. So my grandfather, my abuelo, was listening to that story And he came home one day and asked Nani, he said, do you want to go to the United States so that the children can learn English? And she said that without a beat, she said, yes, because of course she had already been here as a young woman, but said they had eight children. And my mother was around 12 or 13 years old at the time. And she's like in the middle of, of the eight children. And my abuela, my grandmother, flew to Atlanta, flew first to Miami with the eight children where they had cousins and then drove all the way to Atlanta with her brother and other cousins. My grandfather stayed back in Bogota working for the same company, sending them money to Atlanta to support them. So it was sort of a reversal of what happens now where, you know, men come and work in the U.S. and send money home or families do that. So my grandmother and her eight children lived in Atlanta and they have such funny stories because they didn't speak any English. And so we actually have a clipping of a newspaper in Atlanta where the whole family is in a photograph and it says that they moved to Atlanta without speaking English. And so that's where our story in the U.S. starts. And that was 1959. Wow. There's so many things you just said that's interesting that I could go down different paths from growing up, you know, being able to be out in the streets playing with your friends and your mother calling for you to come home. It's exactly what happened to me. My mother would uh, open the window and call out like this, you know, Sydney, and I'd be down the street playing with my friends and you say bye, you run home and you go home for dinner. What a difference uh, of a world to what we're in today for so many, not everyone, but for so many people. But this other thing about sitting down, you said it was with your grandmother that you you asked her all these questions and you wrote it down or maybe you record it. That's one of the greatest things you could have done, isn't it? Yes. I never knew my own grandparents. My parents are gone, but I wish that I had done that because there's a lot of history. And, you know, you know certain things, but there's so much you don't know. And it's lost, it's lost forever. During COVID, I've spent some time on genealogy and made quite a few discoveries. It's been very interesting, including cousins I never knew existed, second cousins from a branch of the family that if my mother was still around would be beyond thrilled to know. She never knew any of them were around. But there's still so many holes in so many places that we don't know because of the oral history. So I absolutely encourage people who have a chance to do it because you don't even think about it. You know, most people don't. You just You live your life, you're busy. You know, you see your grandparents at, you know, Thanksgiving or some such yeah. thing, you know, and you're off and running, you're building your own life, your own career. But yeah. I don't have to tell you, but I could tell other people. It's something you might regret not taking advantage of that opportunity when it exists because I, mm-hmm. I didn't do it, uh, but you yeah. did. And I think yeah. you know, that's something yeah. wonderful. Yeah, we all did. We actually created a book. So I published a, you know, a book for the family that has yeah. all of the family tree and the stories. And before mm-hmm. she passed away, we asked her all the questions and she just shared some anecdotes of when she was in boarding school and how the nuns did not, you know, they could not eat more than one cookie with warm milk. And so at night they would sneak downstairs to the <laughs> kitchen and 
Uh, yeah. And still, and they wanted to, you know, she was like, oh, I just love the warm milk. So she would sneak out to the kitchen and drink more. So, mm. you know, just stuff like that. That's great. So what a rich history to have. One more thing on the genealogy aspect. So I talk to people about it, friends and whatever. Not everybody actually cares. I don't mean about me, but about their own family. Not everyone cares that much about knowing. And a very close friend of mine is a very smart, very good person. He says, you yeah, know, well, yeah, but what do I need to know? I mean, how's it going to change anything? And for me, it's everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really important. Uh, yeah, me too. So it's very interesting about, yeah. you know, different people. I mean, it's not what's right or wrong, but it's very interesting how it's yeah. so important for some and yeah. not for others. It's very important to me because, first of all, I love history. It's also the fact that knowing the history of my family, knowing what my grandparents decided to do changed my life. Right. Because I could have stayed in Colombia. You know, mm-hmm. I'll share with you how that changed my history as well. But if it, they had not made that decision, I would not be here. That's exactly right. Some of these decisions, that sounds like a very conscious decision. Sometimes they're random or they're forced upon you. I and mean, you look at what's going on in Ukraine and the terrible tragedies. And this is going to change generations of people who will leave and never come back let alone people that will end up with you know terrible suffering in their own families as well, including people dying. So back to kind of your timeline here. So we just talked about your grandparents and your parents and coming back and forth between the U.S. and, uh, and Colombia and going to school. But you did that as well. You were born there. So how old were you? Did you come just for high school or did you move to the U.S. earlier? So because my father was a pilot and my mother's family was still in between Atlanta, um, Charlotte and Miami, we would go every summer. So my mother, let me just back up a little bit. My mother graduated from high school in Atlanta and then she came back to Colombia to visit her father because, of course, her father was still in Bogota, sending money to Atlanta, working here, working in Colombia. And so my mother came to visit him and visit her cousins. And she ended up falling in love with a Colombian Air Force pilot and getting married. And so my siblings and I were born in Bogota. But since her mother and all of her family were in the United States and my father was a pilot, we had the privilege of flying for free. And so I think my first time in Miami was when I was two or three years old. And so we went back and forth our entire childhood. And when I was about 16 years old, my parents divorced and my mother decided to leave Colombia and move to the U.S. near her parents. And so we moved in 1981, we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. That was a culture shock. That was just, oh my God, it was so different. And in 1981, Charlotte is not the city that it is today. You know, I was coming from uh, the capital of Colombia, from Bogota, like 7 million people, very metropolitan, very different. But it was in Charlotte that I graduated from high school. And because my experience was not a happy one, it was just very, the culture was very different for me. And it was a very tough age, you know, when you're 16 Mm -hmm. to move Mm -hmm. to another city, uh, let alone another country where, Mm -hmm. although I spoke the language, I spoke English that was taught very properly by nuns that were American nuns from San Francisco of Assisi. And so I didn't know any slang. I didn't know what the life of a young person was in the United States. It was just very, very different than my own experience. And I was coming from an all-girl Catholic school in Bogota Mm -hmm. to all of a sudden a co-ed public school in Charlotte. And so 
I graduated and left. I then, you know, went to Bogota to visit my father and decided to stay. So I sort of did the same thing my mother did. Um, That's right. So, yeah. So I stayed in Bogota after that. So when you were in high school, you had some cousins with you at that time because you had these extended family in the area? Yes, just you? but not none of them lived in Charlotte. Most of the family stayed in Atlanta. So I had a lot of cousins in Atlanta. And yeah, the cousins my age lived in Atlanta. The other group of cousins my age lived in Venezuela. And so I didn't have really did not know anyone in Charlotte when we moved yeah. there, so except my grandparents. High school, high school is challenging for uh, everyone, and I guess when you're different in any way, it's even more challenging. And I wonder whether that in some way has informed what you ended up doing in your career, because you were an outsider there and Absolutely. could not have been comfortable. Yeah. Absolutely. It is, this is why I also love history, right? See, because when I look at my life, I realize that that marked me so much in so many different ways that, uh, first of all, I consider myself an inclusive person in the sense that if I'm anywhere at a party or at a dinner and I see someone sitting on their own or not being included in the group, I'm the person that goes, hey, come here, come talk to us, don't sit by yourself, get close to us, exactly, because I lived that outside world for three years in Charlotte. And, you know, I was the only brown girl in this, you know, school of almost 2,500 students when kids found out that I was from Colombia, this is a funny story, said they would ask me if I had pot. And I didn't know what that meant. Because <laughs> first of all, just because we grew up in Colombia doesn't mean that we have marijuana everywhere. And so I had never seen it nor smoked it. And I didn't know what the word pot meant. And so when she asked me, hey, so you're from Colombia, do you have any pot? And I go, well, my mother has pots. I thought oh, she was no. asking me about <laughs> cooking pots. <laughs> Oh, I could just imagine the reaction uh, that, oh, yes. that you got from that. Her face was like, your mother has pot? <laughs> <laughs> she was impressed. I, no, <laughs> I had no idea what she was asking me. You know, and so I knew that I looked different from the rest of the girls, right? And it was 1981. You remember that time that, you know, most of the girls in Charlotte looked like Farrah Fawcett majors, right? They were blonde and their blue eyes and their hair was feathered back. And I didn't look like that at all. And I had braces and I had brown hair. And we were not allowed to wear makeup in our school in Colombia at all. No makeup, no jewelry, nothing at all. And then all of a sudden I find myself in this very different world where makeup and jewelry is allowed and everybody's expressing themselves individually. Mm. And so, you know, that really created a sentiment of outsider for me, of mm. someone who did not fit in and could not fit in, even though I spoke English, even though I knew the language. So that, as my career started and how I ended up then in Nashville, Tennessee, then I realized that part of what I do in advertising and public relations and marketing is through the lens of culture, and that's where it starts. Right. So let's kind of move to that. I mean, I know you were in Miami. I think you worked in publishing. Actually, why did you move back to the U.S.? So this was after university, I guess? Yes. So I have a degree in advertising and public relations from a university in Bogota, 
And during my last semester of school, you know, my boyfriend and I had a child, we got married. And so we were making a life in Colombia. The marriage did not work. And so when the marriage ended, I found myself in Miami. My mother had moved from Charlotte to Miami in the late 1980s. And so 1992, I got divorced and found myself in Miami with my son living with my mother. So that's where my life back in the U.S. started. So you were a single mom at that time, and you went to work. You got to get a job, and you worked in publishing. I mean, you had a university degree, so you had some opportunities, right? And was it then that your mom was able to take care of your son when you were working, or, or she was also working? She was also working. So I moved in with my mom and my siblings. You know, my, my mother definitely wanted and prayed that my siblings would live with her until they got married, and they did. So that's part of our culture in Latin America, where you live with your parents until you get married. And so that's something that my mother was able to enjoy. And so when I moved back to the U.S. now with a two-year-old little boy, we lived, you know, with my mother and my siblings who were lifesavers for me, really and truly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my divorce happened and my mother said to me, my mother's a very strong woman. She has gone through a lot. So she's very practical as well. She's a praying woman. But she said to me, Marcela, I'm going to give you two weeks for you to cry and then you have to go find a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And you did, but it wasn't long after that that you moved to Nashville though, right? Yes. Yeah, so I worked for a Spanish language publishing house in Miami for about mm-hmm. 18 months. Mm-hmm. And then I started feeling that I was supposed to move out of Miami, which in the practical, natural world would not make any sense because I was, you know, I lived with my sister, my brother, my mother. I had a lot of aunts and cousins nearby. A lot of people had Uh moved from Atlanta to Miami. I knew a lot of people. And, you know, we went to a church with a Cuban pastor and, you know, people are, Latinos are very, very friendly and especially, you know, Cubans are very friendly. So I had a village, you know, also Uh at work. Oh, all these people loving me, helping me with Esteban. Esteban was going to daycare at a Cuban church, so he was learning how to speak Cuban. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so, and I started feeling something moving inside of me, like literally something in my spirit moving and moving and saying, mm. "We're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving." And I'm like, "Where are we going? You know, why would I leave Miami? You know, with all this support group?" And so I started looking for cities in the U.S. that had the Christian publishing industry because that's where I was working in Miami. I was working for a Christian publishing house that published books in Spanish, and I was part of the advertising department. And so when you look at the publishing industry in the Christian world, you either found Colorado Springs, Colorado, or Nashville, Tennessee, which is also considered the buckle of the Bible Belt. And I never heard of Nashville before, really, in any big way, but we left. I applied for a small job outside of Nashville in a small city called Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and I got the job, and this was 1994, and my son and I drove from Miami. My mother came with us, my sister, and her then fiancé, now husband, drove us from Miami to Nashville, and we arrived August 20th, 1994. Not memorable at all, right? (laughs) Uh Yeah. But why did you do this? Why did you feel so compelled to leave? I mean, a wonderful, you said it's a village. It was fantastic. And yeah, people are always missing that. Yeah. Sid, I'm going to tell you exactly, you know, 
what I heard. You know, there was no practical, natural, physical mm -hmm. reason for the decision. It was all mm -hmm. spiritual. It was all spiritual. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Nashville, of course, my mom and my sister and fiance left right after. And I remember crying at night. I would, you know, Sarah and I live in a one bedroom apartment because I, you know, the job that I got was paying me $19,000 a year and I had to pay for my own taxes. So he was not being real legal there in my, in hiring me. And so I would cry at night in the bathroom after I would put my son to sleep. So he would not hear me cry and ask, why am I here? I was 29 years old and I had a four-year-old son and had no family And I knew no one except the person who had hired me. And I lived there for 27 years. Absolutely love Nashville. But, you know, at the beginning of our stay, I knew I was supposed to be there. I knew I was supposed to be there. And when I look back and as I would ask spirit and pray and just, you know, read my Bible, etc., it was like I needed to grow up. I needed to mature. I needed to find out who I am. Because I was raised by two loving parents. I was very spoiled. I am actually the most spoiled of my siblings. Anytime that I would need something, my father would provide it. You know, I had not stood on my own two feet ever. And now I found myself in a new city, knowing no one, and with a four-year-old son as a single mother. Did you actually know that or understand that at that time? Because now you reflect back, you see the story. But at the time, you still were compelled to leave. But did you have this kind of deep understanding of where that was coming from? No. I just, it was a I puzzle just, yes. for your family. They were looking at you like, what are you doing? Well, you know, my mother never questioned. My mother, again, she is so strong and so driven. And so when I told my mother, I said, you know, I really feel like I'm supposed to move and I'm supposed to go to Nashville. She said, do it. Wow. You know, and she never stopped us. She, she has never stopped any of us from doing anything that we feel we mm -hmm. must do ever. She's never given us any guilt trips about anything. And so I just knew that I had to, I didn't know why, I just knew that I had to do it. And so I was happy to do it. I was happy that we moved. It was hard. And yes, I had, like I said, nights of crying, but it wasn't, I wasn't crying because we had moved. I was crying because I wanted to know why, like, okay, why am I here? And I say this, I say that Nashville raised not only my son, but myself, it raised me and Esteban and I raised each other, right? We're very, very good friends. My son and I is now 31 years old and married, mm -hmm. but it was a relationship of both growing up together in this beautiful city of Nashville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Wow. So it wasn't that long until you ended up going out on your own, not only physically or in terms of your life, but for work. So what happened? Like what led to you being really an entrepreneur? In May of 2022, it will be 20 years of me being an entrepreneur, and I plan to celebrate that big time. I got the job that moved me to Nashville, which was in this small city of Murfreesboro. I was working for a family-owned small Christian company, and I worked there for about 18 months as well. It was also a very difficult experience, just very, very difficult, not only culturally, but the culture of the company, the culture of the family. 
However, all of that just helped me grow and see things differently and just learn about myself. And then I left that company for a bigger publishing house. I worked for the Spanish division of the largest publishing house of Protestant Bibles in the world. And they had just acquired a small Spanish language publishing house in Miami, and they moved the operations to Nashville. And the Christian industry and the publishing industry is very small, so everybody knows each other. And so when they bought the company in Miami and moved it to Nashville, they knew that I was in Nashville already. You know, I had met them before when I was in that other job. And so they called and said, you know, we have this position in sales. Would you like to consider it? And, you know, I said, yes. However, I left another job because of just the culture of it was very toxic. So I left it without having this new job. And then three days later, they called and said, if you want the job, you have it. And I'm like, oh, thank God. And so I, you know, I started working for this other publishing house. I worked there for six years, first as uh, in sales and then as marketing director of the Spanish division. And then one day in the month of, I think, February or March of the year 2002, I came to work like you do every day. And then at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, they called me into this small office and they said, you know, Marcela, we want to thank you for your six years of service, but your position has been eliminated. And my first reaction, like the first thing I heard my soul say was, oh, finally. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> wow. I bet they didn't expect that. No, I don't think I said it out loud. I don't even remember. But I heard my mm-hmm. soul say, oh, finally. And I'm like, well, that's strange. And so I, you know, I said, okay, thank you. They gave me the terms, you know, they tell you, you can do this, you can do that, et cetera. So I got out, you know, left the, the little office and went and called my mom. You know, I went back to my desk, to my cubicle, and I called my mother. And my mother said, well, praise God, let's see what he has for you now. So I always tell people, if you want to have a pity party, don't call my mother. She's, she won't let you cry. <laughs> How long did it take you then to decide what you were going to do next? One month. One month. One month. Yes. Because I, you know, the reason I decided to go on my own was, you know, I started looking for, okay, what other job do I want? And what was happening at the time is that all of these companies that were doing business with Latin America were not used to the roller coaster that the economy in Latin America is. So every year that you know, Argentina or Colombia or any of these big, you know, uh, economies in Latin America would take a deep, you know, dive. These companies would get very scared and they would start eliminating those Latin American positions. And so I thought, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to be in a position where somebody else has control of my destiny. That was my thought. And Mm -hmm. so at the same time, the 2000 census had just released all of their data. And it showed that in the South of the United States, the Latino mm-hmm. population was growing faster than in any other part of the United States. And in Tennessee alone, from the previous census to 2000, it had grown by 970 something percent. <laughs> and so <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. So there's a need for what I do. And the confirmation was, I just started to drive the city to see what was happening in the city as far as the immigrant population was happening. And I drove up and down Nolansville Pike, which is one of the main corridors in Nashville. Mm. And it's the corridor that has the most 
immigrant population. And mm -hmm. there was a huge billboard that said in Spanish, it said, call 911, llame al 911. And I thought, for what? If you did not grow up here, if you don't know about the U.S. culture, why do I call 911? So I immediately realized there's a need for my services from a cultural perspective, from a marketing perspective, and not only from a language perspective. And so that's when I decided to launch Hispanic Marketing Group. What was that billboard that said call 911? What was that about? It was the police department just telling people to call 911. But if you don't have any context and you come yeah. from another country, why would you call it? What does it mean why to would, you? Right. You know, it doesn't mean anything. And so I remember yeah. talking, you know, remember talking to the police department, someone at the police department saying, you know, that doesn't mean anything to us. And the mm -hmm. person said, what do you mean? You don't have police departments in your countries? That's not what I'm so, saying. So, you know, there is a language barrier, but the cultural barrier, I mean, they're closely entwined, but the cultural barrier is separate and additional. And that's what, I mean, you knew that, but you really knew that when you started to think about it. So how do you go about starting a new business? You had plenty of contacts, I'm sure. So usually when you talk to an entrepreneur who has a product or whatever it is, and you were more services, obviously, you say, well, okay, who is your customer? How did you prove the concept? What was your revenue? <laughs> how did this happen? So how did you get this really off the ground that you were starting to make it into a real business? Yes. It was a very exciting time and a very scary time at the same time mm -hmm. because I was still a single mother and I had to have an income, right? And so here's the first thing I did. You know, first of all, as you said, you had a lot of contacts, right? So I reached out to my contacts in the Christian world, in the Christian publishing world, publishing houses, you know, bookstores, distributors, the people who I knew, and no one opened the door. No one. And I really knew at that time that that's where I was not supposed to go anymore. I thought I knocked once. No one opened the door. They've known me for more than six years. I've worked in this industry for years. Mm -hmm. I was actually someone who, when I worked in the Miami publishing house, I was in charge of putting together the largest Christian Spanish publishing trade show that still exists to this day. So I had proven myself to be a good person in marketing, a good professional, et cetera, and no one opened the door. And so that's why you know that's not the way you're supposed to go. So I did what any person in public relations would do, which is to write a press release. So I wrote a press release about me. I said, you know, mm -hmm. this is what I do. If your company is looking for Hispanic marketing, this is the, the statistics are this, the census says that, etc. And I sent out the mm -hmm. press release to the newspapers in Nashville, to the Tennessean, the Nashville Business Journal and the City Paper. And the three of them picked up the story. You know, it was 2002. There were not a lot of stories about Hispanics at the time. And so <laughs> the three of them picked up the story. The Nashville Business Journal, though, did a full page because I was presenting myself as a consultant, a Hispanic marketing consultant. You know, that's what I wanted to be or that's what I thought I would be. The National Business Journal printed an article that said Hispanic advertising agency moves to town. And I uh -huh. thought, oh, my God. So I literally took I had made business cards that said Marcela Gomez, Hispanic marketing consultant, and I threw them away. And I called the graphic designer and I said, change it to Hispanic Marketing Group, Marcela Gomez, president and CEO. And that's what happened. <laughs> I, wish so I, I, yeah, I wish I had kept the other one to show people the difference. Yeah. But from the articles in the newspapers, companies began to call. And 
you know, they wanted to meet with me. They had read the census data. They had seen, you know, they were looking at what was happening. But then here comes, you know, the other dilemma. What do I charge? I had no idea what to charge. You know, I, like you said, if you have a product, if I was making something tangible, I would be able to look at, okay, what's the cost of goods, right? And mm-hmm. what's the profit that I want to make? And how much does it take for me to do the sales, et cetera? But I was selling my knowledge, right? My time and my right. knowledge. And I had no idea right. how to price that out. Mm. And what I supposed I needed to do was to replace my paycheck, right? That's what I thought I had to do is to replace my mm-hmm. paycheck. And so I thought, okay, well, this is what I, but what I, and I told this to people who are going to be solopreneurs and entrepreneurs who have never been to business school or anything like that. I said, you know, you got to remember that you all now have to pay your own taxes and your own health insurance and everything that the company was helping you with. Now it's on your own. But I did not have that concept at the time. said, I just knew that I had to replace my paycheck. So I didn't take that into consideration. So what happened was I thought, well, if I have five or six clients and charge me each $500, I'll be set. And so I had a company call me, which is a public relations firm. They're dear friends Mm -hmm. of mine to this day. And so they called me for a project that they were working on. They were working on the recycling campaign of the mayor of Nashville at the time. And they Mm -hmm. realized that the Latino population that was living in the city was not using the recycling bins properly in that area of the city was not recycling. So they Mm -hmm. called me because of the article and they asked me if I would work with them as a consultant. And they told me what I, you know, what they needed me to do. They gave me like a two pager of things that they needed me to do. And they asked me to think about how much I was going to charge them. And I'm like, yes. So I came back two weeks later with the idea that I'm going to charge them $400 a month for all of this work. All right. Um, And so, but the power of silence, and I also, when I mentor business owners and entrepreneurs, I go, don't always be the one talking because listen to what happened. I arrived at their office and I'm thinking I'm going to charge $400. And one of the partners of the firm is sitting there and she goes, Marcela, have you thought about if you can help us? I go, absolutely. I can help with all of this. And then she goes, I'm going to stop you right now. Before you tell me how much you're going to charge us, I got to tell you that the budget that we have for you for this job is between $2,500 and $3,000 a month. Is that going to be enough? And my, <laughs> response, my response was, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Not true! <laughs> and you walked out of there with your, like, clipping your heels in the air, dancing your way out of there. Yeah. I you know, did what a good was- story. <laughs> And they know it. I told them, I told them the story after 10 years of being in business. And this lovely woman, Katie, said to me, she, you know, her eyes water a little bit. And she said, Marcela, I would have never allowed you to work for $400 a month. Yeah. But what happened after, yes, I left that office and I was like holding in the scream of like, hold it, hold it, hold it. I got into my car and then imposter syndrome. And then I heard my voice, my my ego, my head voice go, do you really know to do what you just said you're going to do? Mm. And I said, no, stop it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And here we are 20 years later. Yeah. Boy, again, there's a lot that you just said is just so interesting. First on the charging and the fee scale. 
It's an extremely interesting question, actually, kind of almost like an intellectual question. What is one's work and contribution? What is it worth? And there's a marketplace that exists, and that's one of the answers. You know, the market is, you know, if you're this type of job, well, you get paid between, you know, 80000 and 120000 a year or whatever it is. And this job is 400000 or 500000 or who knows. But when you're working on your own, it's a little bit different. And I once heard some advice from a senior professor uh, earlier in my career who said, you know, you're always better off just charging a huge amount. And some will say no. But some will say yes, and you'll be surprised. And don't kind of smile too much when they say yes, kind of what happened to you. And then you'll be able to make whatever you want to make without having to work day and night to do it. And I thought, well, that's quite an idea. It turns out to be more true than not. I also found in my own case, because, you know, I do a lot of speaking and consulting in my own arena, that for a long time, I didn't know what, because they ask you what will it be to do this workshop or what have you. And I wasn't sure. Then you kind of get a sense of what the general rate is. But I always felt when I was compelled to give them a number that on the one hand, they could look at and say, this is ridiculous, way too high, sorry. And then if you say or imply, well, you know, it would be okay. You know, this is the number, but I'd like to work with you and, you know, work with your budget. They actually feel bad about asking you to lower your fee because, I mean, some don't, trust me, but many do, because it's not that they think your fee is unreasonable. They just don't think that's something that's in their budget to do and they feel bad about it. And then other times you put a number and they were ready to do much more. And you say, oh, I left all this money on the table. And to this day, I still don't know what the right pricing mechanism uh, is for any of this. So it's quite an interesting thing. What is your work? What is it worth? And I used to say, I didn't always say this to people because it sounds too arrogant, but I have a feeling it's more true than not. And it's I think it's true in your case as well. You know, what is one idea worth, really? Mm-hmm. In my case, I'm in the business of generating ideas. You're in the business of doing that, but also executing on it even more so. And what is it worth? And is it worth a million dollars, this idea? And obviously, you're not paying me a million dollars, or it could be worth much, much more. So it's a very tricky thing. It's a very tricky thing. And I wonder, and maybe some of my listeners will comment on this as, as well, because many of them work on their own. They're professionals. Some of them are consultants on their own. It's very interesting. Now, the other thing that you said is about imposter syndrome, which is a very, very big topic for my incredibly smart students, mostly women, mostly minorities. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a surprise to you because you qualify mm-hmm. on both of those dimensions. Mm-hmm. And I never felt imposter syndrome. And I'm a white male. And I don't know too many other white males that feel that. Is this kind of how deep the cultural mechanisms are in society? that imposter syndrome comes up to equally capable, even more capable in many cases. I look at some of my students that have talked to me about this. They're superstars. There's no question that they're going to be great, but they feel it. And others do not. And maybe that's something you've coached others and seen others Mm -hmm. address. So I'm wondering your thoughts about that and what can be done about it as well. Absolutely. You know, to be quite honest, I only had it that one time when I walked out of that office because it was the transition between working with a team at a Mm. publishing house uh, or at a job where you have a team and Mm. you can bounce ideas off of other people, right? And if something goes wrong, it was a consensus that made the decision of doing this. But in this case, I was being hired for my ideas, for my knowledge, for my Mm -hmm. hours, and it was all on me. And so the voice was like, what do you really know how to do this? Right. And so as I have gone through my 20 year career as an entrepreneur, you know, independent consultant, now CEO of Culture Shift Team, which has been in business for almost five years, 
I don't suffer imposter syndrome at all. I see mm-hmm. myself as someone who, this is what I tell everybody, you bring something very different to the table, very, very mm-hmm. different that everybody else does. Your experience is not the same, not even as your siblings, right? And mm-hmm. so what you bring to the table is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Your voice is valued. Is Your voice is necessary. That's why it's so important to have diverse and inclusive board members and ambassadors and advisors and clients and consultants and employees because everybody's input is different. And so you don't have to be the same as the next person. Now, I didn't grow up with social media. You didn't grow up with social media. We did not have to compare ourselves to anyone. You know, in that sense, right, we we might have compared ourselves to someone at work, but not as much as young people have to go now. I think that is one of the hardest things. And I've heard my son say also in his early 20s that he felt that he hadn't accomplished anything. And I'm like, you're 23 years old, right? (laughs) But of course, you're looking at Facebook inventor and Twitter inventor and all these other people that are just one in a billion, right? So I think the worst thing that we can do really and truly for anyone at any age is to compare ourselves to somebody else. And when I find myself sometimes doing that, because we are all human and our egos are, you know, our flesh, our ego in there is someone Mm -hmm. that can make us, you know, feel much better about ourselves than we are or mm-hmm. much worse about ourselves than we are. It is being in awareness of what that voice is telling you. And the reason why I like history, the reason why I like to know where I come from is because I also like to remember who I am and what I have accomplished in life, what I have done in my life. You know, there is a tradition that is written in the Old Testament of the Bible where God would tell the Israelites to build an altar, whether it was of rocks or whatever, so that when other generations would pass by it, they would be able to tell the story and say, this is why this is here, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I feel inadequate about myself or when I feel like I haven't accomplished something, I have to look, go back and go, wait a minute, but I have done this and 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 this Mm -hmm. is why I'm here today. So that's how I deal with you know, my own personal attacks, if you will, when they come. Right. That's great advice and kind of a mindset for a lot of people. I also think, you know, this idea of comparing yourself to others, you mentioned through social media, of course, but the idea of social comparison, which is kind of how social psychologists describe exactly what you're saying, Mm -hmm. social comparison is completely normal. It is built into us. Maybe it's in our DNA. Maybe it's part of our survival because we Mm -hmm. survive by being part of a group, a village, as you Mm -hmm. said earlier. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that you can drive it out completely. You just can't let it dominate you. And there are two primary types of comparisons human beings do all the time. One is the social comparison. And the other one is, apropos to what you just said, historical comparison. So for example, and this is even true for how companies are evaluated. You look at how companies doing and their EPS, their stock price, what have you. It's always compared to their competitors, but it's also compared to their historical data. And mm-hmm. so it's even in, in you know the world of finance, it's kind of core to world of finance, but it's also core to each of us uh, individually. And while there are dangers of allowing historic comparison to dominate because you know it's possible that you know, life is not a straight line or a straight slope going mm-hmm. up slowly, slowly. It's a zigzag and peaks and valleys, but in a way it's a little bit safer. I've seen among the best professional athletes or Olympic athletes who have figured out most of the time, no one can do this all the time, 
figure out most of the time not to fall into the trap of social comparison because I've said this a number of times, the skier Michaela Schifrin, one of the greatest, if not the greatest downhill and slalom skier ever, she has said, and she's not always succeeded with this, she struggled with this in the 2022 Olympics, she struggled with this, but over a course of a career, she's been really a standout, Mm -hmm. that she compares herself only to what her capability is, what her own expectations are, what she can do, because she could run the greatest race of her life and still lose because someone else did something that she had no control over. That Mm -hmm. was their greatest race. And maybe they wouldn't be able to do that more than once in a lifetime. So you can't beat yourself up. You only can look at yourself and what you're capable of. But I also like the idea of aspirations. I love high aspiration people because these are the people going to change the world. And I don't think we want to lose that. And so some edge, Mm -hmm. lack of comfort, you know, that's okay with me. Not everybody likes that, but that's okay with me. I want to ask you about the work you're doing. Basically, the, the shift, like why you shifted from, you know, you had one business and now you've created this culture shift team, which is very interesting terminology, actually, culture shift team. What led to this kind of your own shift? And what's this all about, the culture shift team? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. So in my 20 years as an entrepreneur, obviously, met many people, worked in collaborations many times as well with other entrepreneurs, with other PR firms, etc. One of the people who I met almost 20 years ago, her name is Anne Gillespie. She owned her own company called Prolingua. And we became very good friends in Nashville. We met through a nonprofit organization, started working together, collaborating. She's from a small town in Illinois. And she spent a semester in Brazil. And so she also experienced different cultures, but she didn't have a shock. She actually liked the culture of Brazil, which was different than my experience. And so she says that she came back to school and her DNA had shifted a little bit after that experience. She had realized how different things were. And she also understood that culture was at the core of relationships and started working in that sense with organizations who were bringing you know, employees from outside the United States to the U.S. So she was helping them, you know, coaching them into understanding the culture of the U.S. So she and I collaborated on several projects, had a lot of fun together working on different things. And then we both ended up being hired by the first director of diversity and inclusion of Nissan North America, which is headquartered outside of Nashville. His name is Robert Lawrence Wilson, and he was tasked by Nissan to create what the diversity and inclusion division of Nissan would look like. And so he ended up hiring the both of us to help them with that effort. And we presented to him what we were working on together And Anne was the one who had come up with the idea of culture shift, culture shift team, culture shift team. So we used it as an umbrella for both of our businesses as we were presenting Mm -hmm. to him and doing other things. Anyway, he left Nissan about five, six years ago. No, actually more like seven years ago. And, you know, Anne and I continue to work. We always had thought about partnering, but it just never seemed like the right time. And we had actually worked with other solopreneurs to see if we would create a one company, but it just never got there. So then Robert left Nissan and mm-hmm. took a year sabbatical to think about what he wanted to do with his life. And then one day he called us both and said, you know, I really like working with both of you and really like the idea of, you know, what you presented to me about culture shift team. Have you guys done anything with that? And we're like, well, not yet. It's still there. And he goes, well, I want to be a part of it. 
so it, he was the person we were waiting for without knowing, right? And so uh-huh. in 2017, the three of us got together every other week at my apartment in Nashville. I call it, we were dating, you know, because it was like mm-hmm. a full year of talking and thinking and planning and being visionaries. What do we want to do? Mm-hmm. What do we want to do? And then in November of 2017, I was asked to speak at a conference for automakers. And they asked me to speak about community outreach in the Latino mm-hmm. market and how can automakers uh, take advantage of that. But it was mm-hmm. from their recalls department, the engineering department, it wasn't sales. And so I had the speaking engagement and we actually you know, got a contract out of that from a German automaker based uh, in the Tri-Cities. And so we had a, all of a sudden I had a bigger contract that I could serve on my own. And mm-hmm. so uh, the three of us you know, came together and signed a partnership and created the Culture Shift team. And so what do we do? So we're now, you know, we're up to 13, 14 people. It's been right now the 2022. So we'll be five years this year. And we have two divisions of the company, but we basically help organizations understand and leverage shifting and changing demographics and culture in their own marketplace. So what does that look like? There is a diversity, equity, and inclusion division that helps company understand what the culture is in their company, who is being left out, who feels inadequate, who's not bringing their whole selves to work. And so they create strategies, education, and training for them. And I lead the multicultural marketing and advertising division where we create full campaigns, whether it's TV spots or social media campaigns, digital campaigns, or community outreach campaigns for clients Mm -hmm. who want to open new markets. So as you were asking before, how do we value ourselves? How do we value our knowledge? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what is the price that I give? And I still don't charge enough, Sid, to be quite honest. But when <laughs> I think about what I'm doing, what we're doing as a company, by telling, you know, going to an organization, a, you know, Fortune 500 company and helping them see, first of all, see and understand a new market that can be a loyal market to them that no one else is looking at. What does that mean in sales? You know, when you translate that over years, what does it mean in sales? And so what am I charging for my knowledge and what am I charging to not only empower them to understand, but to create a campaign or create ideas that will last forever? So that's right. what we do at Culture Shifting. So you actually have over a dozen people that work with you, like employees. So it's grown quite sizably. So could you share one of the more interesting engagements. You don't have to talk about the specific company name. It doesn't matter. But just in short, you know, or one that was really challenging where you feel like, wow, this is something that's going on here. Maybe something that might surprise people because the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, people spending time and energy in that, it's not that everyone has bought into that, but it's hard for anyone to say that's not a core value in in organizations in America Mm -hmm. um, and some other countries now with still plenty of work to execute on it, but it's there. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the same way that ESG is there, but people are still trying to figure that out. Yeah. So maybe share an example that might open some eyes and also help us think about it a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this was fun and challenging at the same time, I think, because of the level of work that we do. The majority of the work that we do in the multicultural side is community engagement, which is harder than doing a campaign that you can put on TV and, you know, you're selling something sexy or fun. And, you know, and so people can, Mm. you know, go to Amazon and buy your product or wherever they go. 
This one was about the largest recall in automotive history, which is the Takata airbag recall. At some point, you know, millions of cars were being recalled because these airbags were killing people. I don't know if you remember that. It started in 2011 when, you know, where people were just having, you know, just small fender benders and all of a sudden the airbag was exploding in their face. And so the automotive companies, the recalls come from the engineering department, right? And so they send out this you know, envelopes, white envelopes with a letter inside. And if you're an American and you're used to the word recall, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. You don't have to tell you anything. You know, you Mm -hmm. have to take your car in. It's free. You get it replaced. But that's not the case for the rest of us, right? Because we don't know what a recall means. And what the majority of these companies did was Google Translate the letter. Mm -hmm. And so the letter in Spanish actually said, your car has been removed from the market. All right. <laughs> removed from the market. No, it hasn't. I'm, I'm driving. It's in my driveway right now. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes. And so we're like, so, okay. All right. That's it. Right. There's no call to action. I don't have to do anything. Mm. That's it. So the car has been removed from the market. So, what was happening was that NHTSA was the, the National Highway Transportation Administration was telling these automakers, we still have the majority of the cars still under a recall in 2017, 2018, 2019 were in what we call the smile of the U.S., right? So we're talking about Southern California, Texas, Florida, et cetera, and then Puerto Rico. So some of the automakers who saw this realize, oh, that's where the majority of immigrants and immigrants who are of Hispanic descent or Hispanics live. Mm-hmm. So there is something going on. Even though we're sending the letters in Spanish, there's a mm-hmm. factor that they were not considering. And there were a couple of these automakers mm-hmm. who realized it was culture, that there was mm-hmm. something more. And so when I yeah. spoke that day, they reached out to us and said, how can you help us? So the first thing we did was look at what they were sending out. And the first thing I told them was, well, the letter doesn't really say anything. That what you're sending out doesn't, it just, you're telling me that my car was removed from the market. So there was really no, no action for me to take. Secondly, the cars, the letters come in a closed envelope, in a white envelope. And I had thrown away the letter. I had a recall in my car and I just threw it away without opening it because my mind says, oh, they want me to buy a new car or they want me to increase yeah. the warranty. Boom on the floor, right? In the the trash, exactly. Mm -hmm. Then the other thing, and this was the toughest one, Sid, is that when you looked at the zip codes and the counties where the majority Mm -hmm. of these cars supposedly were, you're looking at demographics of immigrants who are what we call isolated, foreign-born, where their native language is their language of choice, where their culture is their culture of choice. So we divide demographics in about five different categories, isolated by culture, acculturated, assimilated, retroacculturated. Not all Hispanics are the same. We're 60 million plus. We're not all the same, right? Mm. Some people prefer English as their language of communication. Some don't. And some people understand the culture more. Some don't. So we divide the target audience to a very small part of it to see how we can Mm. influence them. And so the other thing is that the majority of these cars had not been bought from the dealer. So the dealer did not know where the cars were. The majority of these cars were third and fourth owner in. So Mm -hmm. they didn't know who owned the car. 
right? Yeah. Second, the other part, so that's two things. The third part is that the majority of immigrants who are foreign born, who have lower education levels, who prefer their language of, cho- their, of their native language and their native culture, do not trust institutions and do not trust big companies. So mm-hmm. they're never taking their car back to the dealer for an oil change because their cousin can do it. The uncle can do it. Walmart can do it, right? So they're not going back to the dealer for anything because it's too expensive or because we know in our countries, we think, mm-hmm. oh, those are mechanics who are going to charge us more. They're going to fix one thing and damage the other. And so there was no trust. There was no relationship. And only the authorized dealer could replace the airbag. So we had to create an entire cultural and language relevant campaign to be able to bring the people in. We had to use trusted leaders in each community, influencers in each community, even by county, in order to bring people back to the dealer and get their airbag replaced. And so it's not sending a massive message. It is about making understanding the level of trust, the level of communication, the level of culture, the level of understanding that even by county people have. And we're doing the same now. We have a lot of clients now that are clinical trials. You know, COVID for sure raised even more awareness about health disparities and that the majority of Latinos don't participate in clinical trials because we're never asked to do it. We're never asked to do it. And so now... You know, there's a lot of clinical trials and a lot of healthcare going, uh-oh, how come these people are not coming to us? Well, you mm-hmm. haven't built the bridge yet. Right. And so our entire company's base and our entire services are based on the platinum rule that says treat others the way they want to be treated. And in order for me to do that, I need to know who they are and what they like and how they want to be treated. And so that's what we do at Culture Shift Team. I have to say, Marcella, this is a blockbuster idea. I love the idea. And it's so obviously important. This is what I always say about great ideas. Once you hear it, you say, what do you mean? That's not going on now? Nobody's doing that now? It's like so obvious once you explain it. And also, as you were describing, you know, the way you build trust and you go into the different communities, it occurs to me that maybe the vaccine program would have benefited from exactly that type of work. The other quick reaction, and then we're going to need to wrap up, even though there's so much more to talk about, we're talking over over an hour, um, <laughs> is this idea that you said that there's 60 million Hispanics and they're not all the same. So this is another human nature thing. The majority looks at a minority as a uniform group. And there's a lot of research, whether the minority is in this type of you know ethnic or, or racial minority, or even just, you know, a minority of people that have a particular interest in common. And so majorities look at minorities and they're all the same. The minorities look at minorities and they know they're all different. And Mm -hmm. that simple insight, that's exactly what you're doing, in fact, Mm -hmm. is really, really important. I think it's important for business and the way you're describing it. It's important for public policy, but it's also important, I think, for community building and, and creating types of communities that we want. It's very interesting to hear you describe that. Yeah. And the other thing that the majority does is that it imposes on the minority to be unified. You know, we're all supposed to like each other and work together. And so, for example, in Nashville, when I was, uh, you know, I was president of the Tennessee Latin American Chamber of Commerce for many years. And there's another Hispanic chamber there. 
And people would say, well, why are you two chambers? And I would turn around and go, well, you guys have seven. You know, you have the Williamsburg Chamber and the Davidson County Chamber. Like, why is it imposed upon us that we all have to like each other, work together and be one unified voice? That's impossible. We're all very different. And the other thing, Sid, that is interesting to me is that I did not know I was Hispanic until I moved to Nashville. In Miami, you are who you are. You're Colombian, you're Venezuelan. Even if that, if you want to, you know, you are Marcella. But all of a sudden, in Nashville, Tennessee, I was put in the box called Hispanic. And then not so long ago, I was supposed to be in a box called Latinx. And it's just it's a way for the majority to make it easier to identify us, but it's not for us. I want to be Marcela. I am Marcela. And I bring something to the table that comes from an experience as a Latina and comes from an experience of learning what it is to be Venezuelan, Colombian, Argentina, Mexican in the United States. Because even when I started Hispanic Marketing Group 20 years ago, I didn't have that. I didn't know that. I didn't have that concept of what it was to come from Mexico and cross the border. I didn't know what it was to look Mexican. I have a lot of friends who look Mexican, who, are, who to me are Mexican. And when I would ask them, where are you from? They would say Texas. Where are your parents from? Texas. Well, where are your grandparents from? Texas. And I thought, oh, maybe they don't want to say Mexico. No, they're from Texas, right? Right. And so just <laughs> learning that, learning about cultures and learning about how people identify themselves and how they want to be treated is fascinating to me and is a work of passion. And yes, we can talk for hours about it, Sid. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we can. The issue we're talking about here is really around identity. And what is the identity of any one of us, of any individual? And the truth is, and again, it's kind of obvious if we just thought about it instead of quickly putting people into different groups, we have an identity as uh, Americans, for example, or as people living in a particular state or city, our religious group, our friends, our profession is part of our identity, our family is part of identity, our hobbies, you know, we like to play a certain sport or play bridge or who knows what, that's part of identity. And then our individuality is part of it. All of it, it's not one or the other. It's not an either or, 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 it's and, 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 and. Yes. And, I mean, it's kind of a beautiful thing. I mean, that's a great thing. That's reality. And you see how it translates into business and marketing, and under, but also public policy and also just, mm-hmm. you know, who we are. Marcel, I have one last question to wrap us up. It's my favorite last like a wrap-up question, uh, because it's about advice. Of course, you have been providing advice along the way for various groups, but this is advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were 20 years old, let's say, and as you described earlier, a lot was going on when you were 20 years old. And when you were 20, if you could magically go back to see you and lean over to wherever you were at the age of 20 and say, if there's one thing, Marcela Gomez, at the age of 20 that you really need to know or that would be helpful, what would it be? What would be that one bit of advice to yourself when you were a young woman? Oh, boy, what a beautiful question. I would tell her to be just more intentional about studying. I love my career, love what I do, have loved advertising my entire life, but I would have loved to get more education in different parts of the world. I had traveled a lot because of my father being a pilot, that was a blessing, but I did not have mentors who would tell me, you know, you could go and do a semester in Prague or you can go study law in Paris. You know, if I could turn back time, I would have gone into law. I would have been a lawyer. That's definitely something that I know. (laughs) 
That's interesting. The opportunities that exist for many people, not everyone, obviously, but for many people that are not known is really a big issue. I look at it, for example, for people that go to university when they're the first in their families to ever go to university. And there are a lot of people like that. But in that category of people, many of them actually don't go to university. They don't even know that's an opportunity for them. They're not even aware of it, and they certainly can't afford it. And maybe later, you know, they realize that or they discover that, or but they have that potential. Many universities have been doing a lot of outreach to try to identify kids that are smart enough to go to Dartmouth or Harvard or what have you, but don't even know or barely know it exists. It's quite interesting. I was almost like that when I was young. It's hard to believe being a professor now. But I was... <laughs> I didn't even know where Dartmouth was when I was a kid. I didn't know it existed and knew nothing about it, which is really kind of crazy. Yeah. But, you know, that's how you, people grow up in different circumstances. So yeah. I like your advice. And I've enjoyed this conversation very much, Marcella. Uh, Me too, Sid. Thank going. you so much. Yes, yes, <laughs> we, could, we could. But thank you so much. I really enjoyed as well. Just great conversation and you know, great way to just remember, right? Like remember where we come from, what we've done, what we've accomplished and how to move forward. So looking forward to more. Thank you. Thank you. Marcela Gomez, pleasure to have you on the SIDCAST. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SITCAST is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.